Well, hello. What a delight to be with you all and to be able to not only pray for you for many months, but now to be with you and to join you in this service together. It is, uh, it is uh, fun to have been traveling with my son over the last few months as he's trying to make his final choice for a college. And we have visited many as five or six different churches the, the past month and a half to make a final choice for him. This is probably my favorite service in the last two months. The worship team, that was awesome. <laughs> really, it's like I, I finally felt at home. <laughs> So thank you guys. I, it was a real delight to be here. We have prayed often for you all. I mean, obviously, we feel like a mother church sending all out, uh, feel very, very much ownership in the, the ministry that you have here, and are delighted to see God's work in you. So thank you for giving me a chance to teach you today. Well, in, traveling in India, as I have done every few years, the last time I was there, I came across something that surprised me. As we were driving down the road, there was this little temple on the side. So I, I, we pulled off, and I walked in, and I was surprised to find it was like a miniature temple with a little idol inside of it. I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, it was like you could go to the grocery store. On your way home, you could stop by for your idol worship and then head home to finish the rest of your day. As I traveled through the country, I was surprised. They're all over the country. India is a country with thousands of idols. And so in order to serve, especially the Hindu gods, there are little temples spread all over the countryside for you to participate in idol worship. As unusual as this sounds to Western ears, we all have idols, things that we worship above and beyond God. Idols are God's substitutes. They may not be wooden or metal statues, but in our day, they still surround us and they dwell in our hearts. Unlike India, we don't have statues or roadside temples. I didn't see any on my drive up here. But we do have idols in our life that demand our worship, that say and whisper to you every day, pay attention to me, do what I say. Listen to what I want. Obey what I am telling you. We have idols that compete for our affections and push God out of our life. What the great reformer John Calvin said is we are producing idols in our heart every day. We are idol factories. So the question for you is, what are your idols? What are you worshiping today? If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 with me. We're going to be in verses 17 through verse 40. And the main thing we want to consider is Elijah's challenge to us, which can be summed up in a question. How long will you waver between the Lord and your idols? There are false gods that we spend our days worshiping, and God's aim is to show you how foolish it is when we worship anything other than the Lord himself. So, the sermon in just two sentences, I like to give a thesis sentence. So, here's the thesis sentence for the entire message. There is one true God. You must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. 
there is one true God, you must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. Just a little background to our story. Uh, uh, In our story, Ahab is king over Israel and he marries Jezebel, who comes from a land north of Israel. And as Jezebel comes to be with the king, she brings along with her foreign gods. Now, you know how the, the scriptures talk about in the Old Testament not marrying foreign wives. It's not because of racism or nationalism issues. It's because foreign wives often brought foreign gods, and they often corrupted the worship of the Lord God Almighty. That's why the warning was there. And so Jezebel persuaded her husband to turn away from the one true God and to worship her God, Baal. And as the king and queen go, so also does the nation go. They are led astray to worship false gods, and that's the end of chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16. Then the Lord sends the prophet Elijah onto the scene to announce a famine at the very beginning of chapter 17. But you got to ask, anytime the narrator tells you something like that, well, why a famine? (laughs) Of all things, why does God have the prophet announce a famine? Well, Baal was the god of rain. And so what better way to show who's superior than to bring a famine? What better way for God to show who's really in charge than to take away the rain? With that background in mind, let's read chapter 18, which, you'll, uh, which you should turn to in your Bibles right now. And point number one, choose whom you will serve. Point number one, choose whom you will serve. And that's going to be verses 17 to 21. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Well, this is Ahab's first encounter with Elijah after three years of famine. And did you notice the first question out of Ahab's mouth there in verse 17? Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab had lived three long years at this point under a famine. That's the difference between chapter 17 and 18. Three long years. After Elijah had announced the famine, he had skedaddled. He was gone for three years. And Ahab had had to live under this famine and the torture brought upon the land. But Elijah returns and he, 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 he accuses Ahab of actually being the real troublemaker. Look at verse 18. I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah said that Ahab was at fault for the famine because as the king, the king had done two things. First, look there, he had abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Now remember the, the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. What is it? Exodus chapter 20. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. Verse 3, 
you shall have no other gods before me. And the second thing you see there, he followed the Baals. Ahab had led the nation to follow the false gods of Baal and Asherah. Ahab was trying to blame Elijah for the famine, but Elijah knew who was the real troublemaker. And then look there in verse 19. Elijah asks Ahab to gather the prophets of Baal and Asherah and all the people of Israel at Mount Carmel. And then verse 21, Elijah turns to all of Israel and offers this challenge. How long will you go limping, interesting word, limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, I want you to picture on one side a church and on the other side an idol. And you notice that word I emphasize that Elijah said, limping. Picture a man going between the church and the idol. And then the idol and the church. And he's dragging his leg along. He's limping along to get between the church and the idol, and the idol and the church. What's being pictured here? It's meant to be a pathetic picture of a limping man stumbling between two options. The Israelites were wavering between two opinions. Do they follow God or do they follow Baal? And Elijah was challenging them to choose which God they will serve. So, as Philip announced, I, you know, I have five children, and you remember children, especially if you're a parent, at younger stages, when you call a child to you, and you know that when they don't want to come to you, and what do they do? They kind of shuffle their feet, they kind of drag themselves along. Why is it? Because they don't want to really obey. They, they don't want to come to you. They, they struggle to come along because in their heart, they, do, they, they know what's coming, and they don't want to do what, what, what you're asking them to do. Limping along, struggling along, it's not that the child is not able to come to you. The point is, he doesn't want to come to you. There is a spiritual tug-of-war going on in the heart, and they're resisting. Well, Elijah says to the people of Israel, stop wavering between the God Almighty and your false gods. Follow God and stop resisting, stop dragging your feet, stop limping along, come to the Lord right now. He's saying, choose whom you will serve. Choose whom you will serve. Therein lies the challenge. Who are you going to follow? That's the challenge in which God offers you today. Who are you going to follow? the Lord or your idols. Now, we all have idols, things that compete for our affection and worship of God. Do you idolize success in your work? Maybe you're caught up in your work and it seems to dominate your life. Or anything that controls your life other than God can be an indicator of an idol in your life. So do you struggle with lust and does it wreak havoc on your life? maybe you're shaped by other people's opinions. What they think of you really rules your life. As a single, do you worship the idea of getting married one day? Or as a young man I was talking to this week, he really is so content in his singleness and worships his freedom, he, he idolizes that and doesn't want to give it up. What, what, do you, what do you worship? 
What are your idols? Maybe it's security. So you have security in a nice home, in a nice car, in a good job, in a vacation, in a big bank account. What is it that you're worshiping today? Take a moment, just think about it. What are your idols? I want you to get something to your, bring something to your mind. What is my idol? What competes for my worship of God? If you're not sure, just simply answer the question, what matters more to me than God? Now, it's shocking when I say that out loud, isn't it? We're in church. We're not supposed to say that kind of thing. But if we're all honest, there are things that compete for our affection of God. There are things that demand our worship. There are things that whisper to us and say, we matter more than God. We, we want your attention. We want you to worship us more than God. We want you to bow down to us. So think for a moment, what is that? What matters more to you than God? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. What a wonderful thing to do on a Sunday afternoon as you're finishing up your weekend to gather with God's people to hear about what God would have to say from His Word. It's, it's a good thing to consider what rules your life because the same thing applies to you. There are things in which you have re- revolved your life around, which set the agenda for your life, which matters more to you than anything else. And so consider for yourself what it is that, that you revolve your life around. My question for you, whatever it is that you've made central to your life, is it really bringing the satisfaction that you want? Is is it really bringing you the happiness that most people try and contend for? Is it really bringing you the joy that you think you deserve? My contention for you is most people, as they begin to really look closely at their heart for their own idols, will begin to discover Actually, it's not that satisfying. It's not really delivering on its promises. It's not really giving me what I want. I'd submit to you that a job, a car, a house, a nice vacation, a good retirement plan, relationships are never meant to ultimately satisfy you. The things that you're turning to are never meant to carry them by themselves the burden of your desires and affections. Only God can do that. Only God is big enough and powerful enough to be able to do that. That's why he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins so that you don't have to do this by yourself, so that you don't have to fight this life on your own. Christ died so so that we can actually give our life to him and that God can now carry the weight of our burdens and our sorrows and our troubles and even our worship. Only God is sufficient for our worship. And so if you don't know Christ, gosh, you're in a great spot because you're in a room full of Christians. So after the service, you can literally turn to the person next to you and say, can you tell me more? And knowing a lot of these people, they'll say, yeah, let's talk about it right now. The striking thing is, look at verse 21. The people did not answer him a word. The Israelites' lack of response spoke volumes. The people were wavering between two gods. 
and they were not ready to commit. And their silence was embarrassing. So yesterday I attended a wedding between Austin and Hannah. And Charles officiated the wedding and did all the things you expect in a ceremony. He led the service in prayer and he he invited everyone to participate in different ways. But there gets that time when you get to a service after the scripture reading and the prayers where the the, the officiant, the the pastor says to the bride and the groom, do you take so-and-so to be your husband or do you take so-and-so to be your wife? So let's take Heather and Darren. Heather's the bride. And Heather's standing there as the bride, beautifully dressed, and she's facing Darren. And let's say Charles in front of them says, do you, Heather, take Darren to be your husband? What normally happens? She says, I do. But let's say she doesn't say anything. And we're awkwardly waiting because everybody's paying attention to what's going on in front. And then she doesn't say anything even after a few more minutes. We're all staring and wondering, is she okay? And it gets to be not just one or two or three minutes, it gets to be five minutes, and it's, it's really awkward now. Because <laughs> now Charles is worrying, like, what's going on with Heather? You know, it's no different for the Israelites. Their silence was communicating to God I have not made up my mind what I'm going to do. I'm not sure if I'm going to commit to you. I don't know if you're worth it. I like my idols, and I'm not ready to give you up, give up my idols for you. The silence communicated a lot. The God of the universe has sent his prophet, to call the Israelites back to himself, and yet the people were not ready to give up their false gods. They were noncommittal at best, so the question for us is, are you ready? There's a daily battle that each of us has to face, and this is the question that every morning we have to face in our life. Who will we follow? Who, who will we choose to follow? Will I worship my own idols or will I worship the one true God? And if you believe the God of the Bible is true, then you must choose to follow him. Well, there's another reason why you should choose to follow God and reject your idols. And that point number two, your idols will fail you. Point number two, your idols will fail you. And that's uh, verses 22 to 24. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left, uh, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put it on the fire. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well. 
Elijah explains to the people of Israel a sudden death competition between himself and the prophets of Baal. See there, verse 22, Elijah points out that he is outnumbered. There in verse 23, Elijah explains the preparations for the offering. Each side gets a bowl, they cut it up and prepare it for the altar. And then verse 24 is the key. They each get to call upon their God, and the God who answers by fire is this, uh, in this sudden death competition. He will be declared the real God. Only the true God who answers by fire and p- will prove to be the real God in this competition between the prophets. Now look there, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. The blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. So verse there 25, at verse 25, Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal and gives them the same instructions for the sudden death competition. Now, did you notice that Elijah allowed them to go first? It's a sudden death competition. So, you know, whoever wins, whoever's God sends down the fire from heaven first is the winner of the competition. So you got to ask, why is Elijah letting them go first? You know, why is he let them go out ahead of him? Was it good sportsmanship? He's letting the prophets of Baal pick their bull first. He's letting them have a bigger team. He's letting them call on their God first. Now, Elijah, don't you know this is Sunday competition? Don't you know that if their God sends out fire first, they win? Well, Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first because he's confident Baal is not a God. He wasn't scared. He knew that if the prophets went first, it was going to amount to absolutely nothing. And in fact, he's right. Look at verse 26. The prophets pick a bowl, prepare it, and they call upon Baal all morning. And the text says, there was no voice and no one answered. Then look there, verse 27. Elijah resorts to holy mockery of the prophets. And then verse 28. They break out in a religious frenzy, crying out and cutting themselves out of desperation, hoping that their frantic activity might provoke an answer from Baal. But the text says again in verse 29, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now notice, 
the narrator doesn't even say Baal didn't answer. The narrator doesn't stoop so low even to admit the existence of Baal. He says, no one answered. No one answered because Baal didn't exist. No one answered because he was fake and bogus. He was a non-entity. He was not a god. And so therefore the narrator said, no one answered. Put yourself in the position of the prophets of Baal. You'd stake your whole life around this. You'd built your whole profession around worshiping this false god. And here it is. It's game time. This is the real competition. This is when my God's supposed to show up and prove that he's the real God. And yet nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. Baal didn't answer because he didn't exist. In this sudden death competition, he didn't deliver. Do you expect too much from your idols? Here's my warning. If you build your life around those false gods, your idols will fail you. All of us have hearts that are idol factories, and so we generate idols that demand our worship. How do you know what your idol is? Well, look at what happens when your idol is actually taken away. You know, thousands of men committed suicide after the economy tanked in 2007. The Journal of British Psychiatry in a study showed that the suicide rate among men skyrocketed over the first few years of the financial crisis. What happened? Well, too many men had worshipped their wealth. Well, can I tell you also how many people have come to me in a deep depression because, and speaking of parents, because their children have gone wayward, or in a Washington, D.C. environment, or they've been fired and they revolve their whole life around their job. You'll see that your idols will fail you because when they're taken away, your life will crash. What about you? Remember the idol I just asked you to get in your own mind? Has your idol delivered on its promises? Has it given you everything it, you had hoped it to give you? I worship my job because it gives me success and respect and a lot of money. I worship retirement account because it gives me security about my future. I worship time off or a vacation because it gives me comfort and rest. Your idols might give you temporary satisfaction, comfort, security, prestige, respect, entertainment, pleasure, happiness, but in the end, does it give you long-lasting satisfaction? Has it amounted to what you want? In the end, I think you're going to find your idols can never ultimately deliver on their promises. You know, uh, um, uh, this is back in 2012. I got a contract to do a book as an author, and I was a little bit surprised uh, I, I, I was thrilled for the opportunity, so I did what every author does. He works hard at it. Writing a book is a labor of love because there, it's, it's a long process to not only to, to finish it, and you think when you're done and you hand in the manuscript, you're done, but it's just getting started. 
there's rounds and rounds of editing and then getting endorsements and then working on a cover and just all kinds of things that go into a book. And I, I realized in that process that for me, there was an idolatry of becoming an author because it was, it was a self-glorifying tactic. It was a way to get my own name exalted. And as much as that's the ugliness of my own heart, it, I had to come to terms with that fact. But then came the glorious day. In the mail, the book arrived. And I pulled it out of the box, excited to pull it out, looked at the cover, I flipped through the pages, looking at all the things I'd worked on. You know what my reaction was? Is that it? Really? I'd worked, worked this long for this? There was temporary satisfaction for probably about 30 seconds, and then it went south. There was a sense of emptiness, like, I'd worked this hard for this? Really? <laughs> My idol had not delivered at all in that moment. In fact, I felt the emptiness on the other side of having achieved a certain kind of success. You know, well, check that off the bucket list. You know, I achieved that thing. But it didn't deliver me on the promises that I thought were whispering in my ear all along. That sense of emptiness showed me that I had been worshiping something that was not worth its time or energy that I'd given to. Do you really think your idols will give you lasting satisfaction? Well, I can promise you that only the true God, the God of the Bible, the God that sent His Son, is the only thing that can give you that ultimate and lasting satisfaction. Elijah was so confident that Baal didn't exist that he resorted to, you see that in verse 27? Holy mockery. Elijah wanted to expose Baal as a fraud and a huckster. He took the opposing prophets and he reduced the, the opposing God to human terms with human limitations. Some of you are looking at this as excuse for sarcasm because you're very sarcastic by nature. This is not that. <laughs> No, this is holy mockery. Elijah's goal is to disprove Baal as a god before he proves that his god is the one true god. Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first because he wanted to show Israel that Baal was not a real god. That's why I call what Elijah did in verse 27 holy mockery. When it comes to the worship of idols or the God Almighty, talking about the difference between eternal life and death Elijah's holy mockery is much more important than our day-to-day -day travails into sarcasm. Well, we've seen that our false gods will fail us, and now Elijah has thoroughly disproved Baal as a god. He's going to turn back to Israel and show them who is the one true God. So that's point number three. Turn your hearts back to God because He's the one true God. Point number three, turn your hearts back to God because he's the one true God. And that's verses 30 to 40. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas, 
two she's of, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Well, look there, verse 30 and 31, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Uh, The neglect to this altar probably showed how far gone things had become with the people of Israel pursuing Baal's worship. Then verse 32 to 35, you see there, Elijah makes the preparations for the offering, and then he has them dig a trench around the altar and pour four jars of water on the altar three times. The people of Israel knew that wet things don't burn. (laughs) Elijah wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God who would bring down fire from heaven. In contrast to the prophets of Baal's frenzied activity, Elijah comes near the offering and offers a very simple prayer. It's not frantic activity. It's just a simple prayer to God. And you see, the pra- you see in his prayer why Elijah did all of this. First thing you see there, look verse 36. He wanted to show that God was the real God and that Elijah had done all this as his servant according to God's very own words. And then secondly, you see there, verse 37, he asked God to answer him so that, this is the key, the people may know that the Lord is God and that God, and you notice the word you, that you, God, is the one who turned the Israelites' hearts back to him. Elijah wanted the Israelites to know God and to know that God had turned their hearts back to him. Verse 37, that you have turned their hearts back, that you is the Lord Almighty. Astounding, isn't it? Elijah's God is a reconciling God. No more wandering, no more limping between God and their idols. If the Israelites would not commit, then guess what? God himself would rescue them from their wicked ways. God would turn their hearts back to Him. 
The same God who covered Adam and Eve with animal skins and promised a seed who would defeat Satan one day is the same God who would bring Joseph's family back from a foreign land, is the same God who took Moses to free the people of Israel before Pharaoh's death grip, is the same God who parted the seas, and is the same God who brought rock from a rock and manna from heaven, and the same God who would take Israel to the promised land, and the same God who would bring Jesus to reconcile sinners. That same God would send his son to die on a cross so that he could turn our hearts back to him. That's the good news. This same God has worked throughout all of history to turn evil sinners back to him. This same God has a plan to take people who cannot come back to him apart from his own strength and say, I will reconcile you back to me. Because I am good and just and loving and merciful. So if you think, I can't do this, I've got good news for you. You don't have to do this on your own. God himself will turn your heart back to him. And that's the essence of the gospel. Not that you have the strength to get out of this mess on your own, but God himself will do that work to turn everything around for your own sake. Praise God, right? That's the hope that we have. That means this coming week, you don't have to give up. It it means you don't have to be sad. It means you don't have to turn in on yourself because God's going to go ahead of you and do the work. What's required of us is to repent and believe, to trust Him in this. A greater prophet than Elijah, Jesus, would not just call down God's judgment, but would lay down on the altar and receive God's judgment for our idolatry. That's the hope that we have, that our God is a reconciling God. Take heart, whoever you are, God does not leave us to our foolish ways on our own, but He sent His Son so we don't have to do this all by ourselves. Notice what happens in verse 38. Fire comes down from heaven. And it not only consumes the burnt offering, but it licks up all the water in the trenches. Now, have you ever wondered why fire came down from heaven? Now, some of you have been with us at CHBC Roof on 4th of July, where you see the fireworks going off behind the Washington Monument, and you think, was this just some amazing pyrotechnical display? Is that what's going on here? Is that how God proves himself? No, remember? The point of the fire, the God who answered by fire is the true God. That's how we know in this sudden death competition. Who is the true God? The God of the Bible is the real God. Now, this isn't exactly the kind of evangelism technique you can use in your office this week, right? <laughs> Imagine this, you know, some of you have been having conversations with non-Christians in your office, and, and in your conversations, you suddenly decide, I'm going to prove to him my God's the real God. And you stand up on your work desk and you say, oh God, oh God, bring fire down right now on this pagan so he knows that you are the true God. Your boss would fire you, wouldn't he? <laughs> that guy has gone crazy with his religion. No, you can't really do that. But the question you have to ask is, does God hear us? 
Does he hear us? I know he does. Many of you have prayed, you've prayed often, and you actually take account of those prayers. Yeah, I remember in college, uh, uh, one of the prayer meetings I went to, they wrote down every prayer. And they would go back months later and let's see, how has God answered these prayers? And how encouraging it is to see how God answers prayer. But some of you have prayed and you think, God sounds silent. I, I haven't gotten an answer like that. Well, if that's you, the one thing I can say is, I know He has answered you ultimately in the fact that He sent His Son. For any prayer when I wonder, God, are you there? The, the proof that He is there is that He sent Jesus to die on the cross for us and that Jesus will come back one day. Look there, verse 39. The people of Israel saw the fire from heaven and they turned back to God. They fell on their faces and declared two times, the Lord, He is God. Just like the Israelites responded, so also this message requires a response from you. In all of this, we see the grace of God to sinners. 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to reconcile us back to Himself. And if we choose to rebel, by Jesus' death, we can be reconciled back to God. God says, put down your idols, turn back to me, your idols will fail you, but my son will save you. So wherever you're at today, look to Christ. Look to Jesus to reconcile you. Look to Jesus to take away those idols. And look to Jesus to help you to see what is the pathway forward. Finally, verse 40. Elijah has the Israelites seize the prophets of Baal and he has them slaughtered. And the prophets of Baal committed treason against the Lord God Almighty. So you, what you want to see here, this is a picture of God's judgment for those who ultimately reject him. Even worse, those who lead others to false worship of false gods. Now, it might seem drastic to us, but what you have to see that these final verses are a picture of ultimate judgment. And so they serve as a warning to us. Don't, don't give yourself over to your idols recognize that God offers these warnings for our own sake to be able to see final judgment has real consequences. There are real consequences if you give your life to all your idols. And so you need to pay attention to the fact that this stark warning tells you repent of your idolatry and turn to Christ in faith. Don't delay and don't wait. Today is the day that you can turn to Christ if you have given yourself over to any kind of idol. There's no reason that you have to wait for tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Why not today choose to turn away from those idols and say, Christ, I want you more than those idols? Well, we should conclude. Uh, if you were with my daughter and I on a Sunday afternoon after church, after we grab our food, we often rush downstairs and flip on the TV because you know my oldest daughter and I are NFL junkies. <laughs> we, we love NFL football. Uh, we, we love cheering for different teams. Some of you will know that one of the greatest NFL quarterbacks is the former New England Patriots quarterback, now Tempe Buccaneer quarterback, Tom Brady. At the age of 43, Brady has seven Super Bowl rings on his fingers. He's considered the greatest quarterback of all time. And ever, ever since his quarterback days of the University of Michigan, where he was actually known as the comeback kid, uh, 
that he would pull out fourth quarter wins in, in, in uh, unbelievable fashion. He was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and the interviewer asked our uber super successful quarterback, why do you have seven Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there? A lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. But I think that there has got to be something more out there. Sorry, that was Tom Brady saying that. And the interview asked, well, what's the answer? Is there something more out there? And shaking his head, Tom responded, I wish I knew. You can have all the idols you want. You can even have all the success you want. You could be known as the greatest quarterback in all of NFL history. But if there is something greater out there and you don't know God, then you're lost. So take today to turn to God and trust in Him and give up your idols. Let's pray together. Lord, there, there are idols in our life as we, our hearts are idol factories and we need to repent of them and turn and trust in you. So help us to do that this very day. We want Christ to reign. We want him to be supreme. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.